Well, I'm so glad to be able to be here today with you to finish up our series following Jesus' life with the disciples and all the things that they um, saw modeled and the things that they learned both through his teaching and through their observation and experience with him. Uh, so this is our final session. We've looked at the fishing miracle and the disciples called a ministry in Luke 5. We've looked at the loaves and fish miracle in Matthew 15. <clears throat> and we've looked at Jesus's act of foot washing and at the Last Supper in John 13. And then we're here today. Through our study, we've learned how Jesus challenges his followers to think beyond their human limits and serve for, from his abundance. And today we're going to look at some final face-to-face -face interactions between Jesus and his disciples. And we'll consider how Jesus reacts to those who fail to serve well. And while it sounds like a downer, this is actually good news for us today. Some of the things we've read about, we, that we're going to read about, are going to sound like the things we've already read about. And so you may be thinking, wow, we're really repeating a lot of the same things. And that's on purpose. God puts these repeated stories, repeated symbols, repeated words, even repeated miracles in scripture for a reason. He's left, I, I like that thought as we thought about the loaves and the fish and um, you know all the times that he used the breaking of the bread throughout scripture and thinking of that as breadcrumbs, a trail of breadcrumbs that he's left for us in his word. He repeatedly uses these familiar items, actions, and words, and sets a pattern that we can recognize. And then when we see them again, we know, oh, this is Jesus at work. So as we read today on your passage on your worksheet here, I want you to take a pen and circle those things that sound familiar based on the things that we've already read in previous weeks. What are some of those items or words or actions that you recognize from what we've already studied. First, I'm gonna read from a section of John 18 that describes Peter's failure before the crucifixion. And then we're gonna jump ahead to a few weeks later after the crucifixion, burial and resurrection, and after Jesus has already appeared several times to the disciples. And we're gonna look at a scene there in John 21. So let's read together <clears throat> from John 18. Then the slave woman who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not one of his disciples as well, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, who was related to the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. And then jumping ahead a few weeks, a group of, I think it's seven disciples, is out on the sea, uh, the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. 
So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he grabbed his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then Jesus said to him, follow me. All right, so what did you circle as far as what are those familiar things that are popping up that we've already seen in the previous passages in this study? All right, so not catching any fish, getting some instructions from Jesus, and getting an overabundance of fish in the nets. Jesus is serving them food. He's done this before, both in serving them food at other meals and washing their feet, serving them. Thank you, Mandy. Peter's denial of Jesus before the Eucharist. Hmm. So his denial, yeah, we read about the Jesus' prophesying of that, yeah, last week. 
The number three. Yeah, the number three. So we see this is the third time that he's seen the disciples since the resurrection. It also goes with three times that Peter was going to deny, deny Jesus and did deny Jesus. Yeah, his third day, he rose third day from the grave. And then we see at the end when Jesus is talking with Peter, how many times does he ask him the question? Three. Mm-hmm. What else is familiar? Go ahead. Mm. Yes. Yes, that's familiar. That Jesus tells. Yeah, I'm saying it. Um, Jesus tells a painful truth about the future for Peter. So that's happened before that he told Peter that he was going to deny him three times, and now he's telling Peter another painful truth about his future. All right, so much richness here. I love how God is such a literary kind of God that he puts all these layers here for us that the more we read it, the more we can recognize um, just the depth of his, uh, the way he communicates with us. So, all right, let's look at that first section in John 18, those several verses there. Standing by the fire in the courtyard, watching Jesus be taken and tried and mistreated by the religious and political authorities, we see that Peter has met his human limits. He's met fear, and he's met shame, and he has failed. His high energy and his passion and his good intentions are not enough to keep him going through the anxiety that comes as he watches this difficult time with Jesus as Jesus faces torture and death. Peter has followed Jesus as far as he can in his own willpower and resolve. His self-preservation kicks in, and just as Jesus predicted, Peter dissociates himself with Jesus. So what do the years of ministry that they've experienced together mean at this point? All the closeness, all of the bonding, all of the trust that has been built. Leaving everything to follow Jesus after the miracle, the first miracle in the boat, and then participating in the feeding of the thousands twice, um, witnessing the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the diseased made whole, all these things he witnessed with his own eyes. And P- Peter himself has experienced the abundant love and power of Jesus in his, his own life and in the life of um, so many in need. And now Peter pretends that he hasn't even met Jesus. So how do we feel about Peter at this point in the passage? Do we feel frustrated with him? Do we relate with him? Do we feel a sense of judgment or compassion? Maybe it's kind of mixed. Describing the scene of Peter's denial, Luke 22, 61 to 62 says, And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. We can see here how Peter feels about himself in this moment of failure, the worst kind of failure, um, to deny his close friend and teacher. Deep grief, 
And we see that Peter has lost every illusion of his own power, loyalty, dependability. He's not the unstoppable force for Jesus that he once thought he was. Well, maybe we've never done something quite this dramatic and haven't been pushed to the point that we would have to think whether or not we would you know, claim Jesus or deny him. But if you've served in any capacity in ministry for any length of time, I'm guessing you've come up against your own frailty, your own weakness, your own fear, your own anxiety. So I want you just as we're going through this to consider a moment of weakness in yourself when you've come to the end of your illusions about your own strength and capability and sense of loyalty. And then consider what kind of fear may have been behind that. You know, I think for us, we haven't had a situation like this where Peter had this great amount of pressure and stress and these questions about what was happening and the nature of what was going on that would lead him to to be tempted to deny Jesus in his fear and his shame. But we have other ways that, you know, we see with Peter, he becomes less and less recognizable as one of Jesus' disciples as he continues to deny Jesus. And we saw last week that um, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. And so we see that Peter's not exhibiting love for Jesus or his his group of disciples by denying uh, their teacher. Um, But we also have ways that make us less recognizable as Jesus' disciples that may be more subtle. And I think it would be good for us to just consider what some of those things are. Like maybe it's, uh, maybe we're the kind of people that we got things uh, to get done. I'm a get it done kind of person. And so I don't care who's in my path. I'm just going to bulldoze. And I'm not going to think about even the people um, around me and how to serve them well or Um, you know, maybe I wouldn't do that to you all, but when it comes to in my home when I've got things to get done and my kids are in my path, you know, I I think like that's probably when I'm less and less recognizable as one of Jesus' disciples. And so as I go through these things, I'm considering and, you know, I'm thankful that I have to dig into this for myself because it's challenging for me. as I have to teach it, to think about what does that look like in my actual life. Um, And so considering how does the love and and power to serve from Jesus make its way out into my life? And in what ways am I looking less and less like a disciple of Jesus? So let's consider that as we go on. So a few weeks after this failure and after Jesus' resurrection, Simon Peter goes back to the familiar things. And I think this happens sometimes when when we have a trauma or difficulty or when we've failed. It just feels good to go back to those old familiar things that we know we're good at and it, it just feels like home. So he goes back to the familiar, back to this trade that he knows by heart, this thing he can pretty much do in his sleep. So the boats, the net, the water. And we see that he's also returned to the community of disciples. So his denial of Jesus, um, you know, I think after the resurrection, being part of uh, those gatherings and seeing Jesus together, he hasn't been ostracized for what he did, but things haven't been fully dealt with either. 
Verse 14 tells us this was a third time that Jesus revealed himself to them after his death, burial, and resurrection. And so Peter definitely knows the good news of the resurrection, but it hasn't been fully clear to him how that's going to work out in his life just yet. I can't imagine that he could come back to the shoreline at the Sea of Galilee and not think back to that day a few years ago when Jesus had come and called him to leave everything to follow him. So again, this sounds familiar, right? That night they had caught nothing, no fish. All night with no results, just like in Luke 5. And the writer here in John 21 is showing us again the emptiness before the miracle and setting the scene so that we see the difference when Jesus gets involved. Verse 4 of chapter of John 21 says, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So either because of their distance from shore or because of the low light in the morning, they didn't recognize him. In the Bible version we're using today, the word Jesus uses to greet the fishermen is translated as friends, but it's actually the word means is another form of children, just like he used at the Last Supper when he said, little children, I'm not going to be with you much longer. So this is another sweet, affectionate word that he uses to address the disciples. Then he asks a question to this group of guys, and this question will help them to pay attention to the reality, the emptiness in front of them, so they'll be primed for this miracle that Jesus is ready to repeat. They have no fish, and for all their training and experience, they just aren't seeing results. Jesus' instructions, you would think, would ring a bell for them, since it's just like what happened in Luke 5. Really similar instructions. Uh, They've caught nothing all night. Jesus tells them to put their net in the water for a catch. Very specifically, Jesus tells them, and this is a little different than Luke 5, he gives them a really detailed instruction, to put their net on the right-hand side of the boat. In scripture, right hand refers to authority, power, and honor. As Jesus interacts with these friends after his resurrection and before his ascension, and his ascension will take him back to the right hand of the Father. Jesus does two things. So he uses this repeated miracle, this familiar miracle, to remind them of their history together and to help them recognize that it's him at work. And then he gives this new detailed instruction to put the net on the right side of the boat. And with this, with this honor, power, and authority symbol, he alludes to the reality that all authority has been given to him. And this is the same kind of wording that he uses in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So it's from this place of authority and power that Jesus will restore Peter and give him a new call to serve. They obey Jesus, cast in the net, and true to form, For Jesus being involved, the results are abundant. The presence of Jesus plus the disciples' obedience has changed the equation. And in this repeated miracle with nets so full that they can't pull them back onto the boat, they finally recognize that this is Jesus. So they didn't recognize him by his voice, but they recognized him by his familiar work. As you think about your own personal history, what are some of those recognizable threads? What are that, what's that trail of breadcrumbs for you that God's been weaving into your story of, of faith and service? There's, what are some of those repeated ways that you're, when you see it, you know, oh, this is God at work. This is the hallmark of Jesus being involved. 
For Simon Peter, the appearance of Jesus and the sequel to the fishing miracle is like a surprise party, and we see that Peter still has his personality. He is as full with joy as his nets are with fish, and he leaves the other disciples to the hard work of pulling the, the net back with the boat. Um, but he just jumps right into the water and can't handle waiting for the boat to make it to shore to go see Jesus. Verse 9 says that when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already made and fish placed on it and bread. So Jesus is prepping another meal for his crew. And he's fed them so many times that, that we've already read about and seen the times that he's fed them as part of the crowd of thousands at the Passover, and since his resurrection, all those meals shared. And uh, one of those was when he was in a room with all of his disciples and he ate some broiled fish to show them that he was really flesh and bone resurrected. He wasn't uh, just a spirit. It might be a fun exercise on your own to go and look up all these stories of Jesus sharing meals with his disciples and see what you notice there. It's clear that Jesus' value of food and fellowship across the table has continued after his resurrection. And we see the fish and bread showing up again um, over this fire in this passage. Jesus invites them to bring this load of fish and put some of those fish on the fire as well. And I like this thought that Jesus invites them to co-labor with him. He's already provided some fish, but he uh, asks for them to, to contribute as well. And I want to draw special attention to the charcoal fire here. Some of you probably noticed this as we were reading the two sections of scripture today, that both of them had the um, instance of, of a mention of the charcoal fire. And so we see the charcoal fire in the verses about Peter's failure. And I don't think this is a coincidence that Jesus is sitting by this charcoal fire here in this scene. As the smoke rises and the coals glow, Peter is, has to be reminded of the failure that happened over that charcoal fire in the courtyard a few weeks earlier. Yet on this fire at the shore, after all that disappointment and Jesus' death, Jesus is once again present with his friends and sharing a meal. And I love how this is a fire of hospitality that Jesus is offering, not a fire of judgment. Peter is still invited to serve and be served at this little table, at this little fire with Jesus. In verse 11, we see that Peter goes back to the edge of the water. He's going to pitch in and help now to pull the net all the way onto the shore. He lugged the catch in and counted the fish. And it was 153, so that'd be about 20 fish per person. That'd be quite a breakfast buffet. And unlike in the first fishing miracle in Luke 5, this time the net is not torn by the abundance there. And to me, this seems like an, a, a symbol or um, a hint at this is a new era that has come with Jesus' death and resurrection. And there's this new incorruptible kingdom that outlasts man-made systems and can hold the abundance that God is bringing. So Jesus seems to be saying, here's this new kingdom I'm establishing here, and you're gonna need some nourishment because I'm sending you out on my name. So come have breakfast, come fill up. And we see Jesus as host as he feeds them. 
So Jesus has appeared to these disciples two times before this, but it seems from what happens here that he and Peter still have some unfinished business. After they finish breakfast over the charcoal fire, Jesus finally brings up the awkward conversation that Peter must be dreading. And so I want us to picture Jesus looking Peter in the eye, calling him by name, and three times questioning whether Peter loves him. Twice Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But on the third time, he can't take it anymore. His feelings are hurt, and he's still living in that shame of his weakness. And we, you know, he was a pretty crummy friend and follower, so um, we can see that he's feeling that about himself right now. He hadn't been strong enough to stop himself after the first or second denial. And remember how last week we read how Jesus had said, I, I mean, how Peter had said he'd follow Jesus anywhere and that he'd lay down his own life for Jesus if it came to that. Well, that self-proclaimed loyalty crumbled under pressure. But here we see at the shoreline, as Jesus is sitting down with Peter, that Peter has this opportunity to process the failure with Jesus. He doesn't have to figure it out on his own. And when we fail, we too have an invitation from Jesus to sit and talk it out. Jesus comes to Peter, not with condemnation. You know, he's, he's definitely broaching the subject, but he, he doesn't come with condemnation. He comes with conversation. He offers both discipline and affection. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And Jesus lets Peter sit with him in this godly sorrow. I want us to notice, connecting with what we saw last week about that, um, the necessity of love as part of service, that all Jesus' questions are centered around love here. It's the foundational element. And it reminds me of what Mandy was sharing about the book that she's going to be talking about um, or leading through this summer about the most important thing that we can do, that a person can do, is to love God. And so we see that Jesus is making that central again. It's not about Peter's willpower or his strength um, or his character necessarily. It's about whether or not he truly loves Jesus. And it's from that authentic love for Jesus that comes from that love from Jesus that will allow Peter to be restored. After each of these questions and answers, Jesus offers Peter an invitation, a new metaphor for ministry. So now he's not going to be a fisherman, he's going to be a shepherd. Jesus has planned for Peter first to be fed by the fire here today and then to feed others. Jesus said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. I love how there's this, it's not a cheap grace here. Jesus doesn't excuse Peter's behavior, but he doesn't let him go either. He doesn't excuse him from the, from the team. And just in this mercy and grace, Jesus offers hospitality and fellowship where we might expect condemnation or where we as people might give condemnation. Jesus comes with hospitality. And then he offers a fresh calling for Peter, even when Peter thought himself useless. The last section here is the hardest, verses 18 and 19. Jesus prophesies a really difficult reality about Peter's future. 
just as he had prophesied a, a reality about the denial, he's prophesying now about um, another difficult time in Peter's life. But it's, this is going to be different because Peter's not going to um, be ashamed of Jesus, but he's going to glorify God. So this section um, gives some phrasing about stretching out his hands and being led where he doesn't want to go. And this is an allusion likely to um, a public execution like crucifixion. And so Jesus brings up the very thing that pushed Peter to deny Jesus in the first place, and that's fear. Fear of death, fear of shame. Peter's service for Jesus and feeding Jesus' sheep will lead him into danger, and we know that from church history that Peter will eventually be martyred for Jesus. But the key here is that Jesus is delivering this hard message as a resurrected Messiah who has himself defeated death. And so that makes all the difference as he's prophesying this hard thing over Peter. So Jesus' resurrection power equips us to face the hardships of ministry without turning away, without running away, without denying, and without opting out. Peter will live and serve and face the future with a confidence in Jesus' resurrection power, a power that will one day make all things new. And this is why Jesus can repeat the call to follow him and have an exclamation point after it. At first, when I read this, I was, I was kind of like, well, that's strange, like to say all this bad news and then just say, follow me. But it's the resurrected Christ that can say something like that because it's in his power, his authority, and his love that we can um, deal with those kinds of difficult realities. So instead of these worries and these fears, Peter's years of ministry will be full of feeding Jesus' sheep, and he's going to be able to put those fears to the side and boldly share the gospel and tenderly feed the sheep. With that in mind, I'd like us to close our study by listening to a portion of Peter's public service, public sermon at Pentecost, and this is in the book of Acts. And um, I'm just reading a few segments of it, but I want us to notice and to think about Peter's journey from fear and denial of Jesus, and then to picture how he is now publicly proclaiming the message of Jesus to his fellow citizens. And we know that this is a dangerous thing, yet we see that he has no fear. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. These are bold words. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, 
for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is quite a transformation story, isn't it? Just to hear him boldly speak this full understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and is doing in his life and in the life of his people and in the life of um, anyone in the world, Jew or Gentile, who comes to him. And so now we see that Jesus's life is finally evident in Peter. From anxiety to boldness, from weakness to strength, Peter's now able to live this out because of Jesus' resurrection power. And so as we close, I just want us to consider what transformation are we seeing? How are we seeing the resurrection power of Jesus' work in us? And how does Jesus want to nudge us to allow that life to show in us, to make his life more recognizable in us so that there's no denying it? Lord, thank you so much for our time together these four weeks. Thank you for the depth of knowledge and insight that we find when we read your scripture, your word over and over again, and just the layers that continue to come up. And I thank you that your word is living and active. And I pray that the words we've read today and these last few weeks would continue to marinate and that we would come away with a clear word for how you're calling us into this next season of our own lives. In Jesus' name.